What's up, Fellowship College Sunday night? Yeah, take a seat. Hey, how about our worship band? They're incredible. Let's give them a round of applause. Seriously, so talented. Thank you all so much. Uh, hey, I am super glad to be back with y'all. Uh, I know fall break just happened. Uh, some of you may have gone home, took a little rest, saw the family. Some of you may have gone somewhere real cool on a trip. Maybe some of you stayed here in Fayetteville, uh, like myself. And wh- whatever you did, I hope it got you primed and ready uh, for the second half of the semester. Uh, this part of the year is actually one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, it's fall. I love fall. It's my favorite season. But specifically, it's my favorite time of the year because it kicks off the holiday season. For me, whenever I think about the holiday season, I basically think of the time between Halloween and New Year's. And man, you just crank out some amazing holidays during that time. Tons of fun parties, uh, going to see family, friends, good food. And one thing that I've started doing uh, over the past two, three years during this holiday season is I have started watching the Harry Potter movies. Anybody a Harry Potter fan in here? Yes. Okay. I don't know that I can call myself a legitimate Harry Potter fan because I only started watching them for the first time like three years ago. Uh, I didn't grow up watching them, reading the books or anything, but I finally did. And I love them. And I love watching them during this time because, you know, you get like the spooky wizard magic vibes for Halloween. You get some really good Christmas shots during the winter and Harry Potter. And they got this, this like big feast and there's candles and snow. Uh, it, it just is the right time of year to watch Harry Potter. But one reason that I really love Harry Potter is because Harry Potter has a story arc theme that a lot of great stories throughout history have. And you'll notice it once I start to describe it uh, in a lot of other stories. It's that there is an individual or a group of people, and they're living their normal life, whatever that might be, and then something happens to them. Something happens to them where they learn something new, they meet someone new. If you're talking superhero movies, they get this like new power, and all of a sudden, the life that they were living is completely changed, There's a new reality, a new life that's opened up, and they can't go back to the old one. Obviously, this happens with Harry. He's the poor orphaned kid who's living under the staircase with his awful family members, and then he finds out he's a wizard, and then he finds out he's like the chosen one of all the wizards, and he goes on these crazy adventures, and his whole world and reality is shaped by something he didn't even realize existed. Uh, It's not just in Harry Potter. One of my uh, other favorite series is The Lord of the Rings, incredible novel and movies. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So I grew up on Lord of the Rings. For you true Harry Potter fans, I'm that, but with Lord of the Rings, kind of mega nerd on that. Uh, But it's the same thing. You have Frodo Baggins, long line of, of hobbits living in the Shire, and he's just doing his normal thing until the Ring of Power finds him. And his identity and his reality become shaped by being this ring bearer to go destroy it. And it's a whole new reality. He cannot go back to what he normally lived. Uh, But you can can see, this is in all kinds of movies. I mean, this is in Princess Diaries with Mia. I mean... (laughs) She, she is the normal girl doing her normal thing, kind of nerdy, just doing, doing whatever. And then all of a sudden she realizes, oh my gosh, I'm this princess, the next in line uh, to this throne in some made-up country in Europe. And now, now you get to watch her ascent 
to the kingdom. It's an absolutely incredible movie. Uh, another one, Star Wars. I love Star Wars. This is just over and over again. You have the Skywalkers. They discover the Force. They become Jedis. Anakin discovers the dark side of the Force, kind of gets betrayed a little bit. He becomes Darth Vader. It's just over and over again throughout all the movies. And then, of course, a super common one are the Marvel movies. You take any superhero movie, this is just the theme. Like, I could tell you the theme of literally any superhero or anti-hero movie, and it's the same for all these characters up here. They are living their reality. They're living their life. Something happens, and then reality is completely changed for them. Y'all, tonight we are starting into a series for five weeks, we're going to be looking at Romans 8, just Romans 8. We're going to dive in. We wish we could dive even longer than that in Romans 8 because it's an incredible chapter of the scriptures that we need to have in our hearts and our minds. Romans 8 is getting at the theme of what I just described. Paul is going to describe something very similar to all those story themes that I just described. Uh, but before we even get into that, I just want to recap Romans. Uh, if you were involved with the 412 Institute this summer, you went through Romans. Uh, but let me just recap a little bit. Romans is a letter written to a church in Rome, a group of believers in Rome, by the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, originally, he was a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee. He was real high in command. He was really passionate about the Old Testament law about being faithful to God, so much so that he thought that the early followers of Jesus were actually a threat to what it meant to be faithful to God, and so he persecuted them. Uh, he killed them, he put them in prison, but then Jesus himself ended up intervening in Paul's life, uh, ended up saving him, and then having him go out as the official representative to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world. And as Paul is going on this mission, he writes letters to individuals, and to groups of believers in order to encourage them and to instruct them on how to follow Jesus. And this is exactly what the letter to the Romans is. It's a letter written to a church made up of Jews and non-Jews. At the time, they're experiencing some division uh, for various reasons, but Paul wants them unified specifically for the advancement of the gospel. And so he writes his longest work explaining what the gospel is and then how we ought to live because of that. And chapters one through seven, leading up to Romans eight, which is what we're gonna be in for five weeks, uh, hits on topics like this, God's righteousness, humanity's sinfulness, living by faith in God, uh, str the struggle with sin and righteousness, and then eventually it goes and it crescendos up into chapter eight, which is describing the life of someone who has the Spirit. When someone gains the spirit of God, the new life that they begin to live, that they have access to, and we're going to see that there are three realities about life with the spirit that Paul's going to unpack in this first section that we're going to hit on tonight. The three realities include a new freedom, include a new lifestyle, and a new identity. This is what we're going to look at tonight. Romans 8, 1 through 11, and so we're just going to dive right in. The first reality about life with the spirit is that there is new freedom. And so Paul begins uh, at the beginning of chapter eight with this victorious statement, something that y'all have probably heard, especially if you grew up in church. He says this, therefore, because of everything I just wrote from one to the end of chapter seven, because of this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
See, prior to the Spirit coming into somebody's life, uh, we're, we're bound by this, this thing that Paul calls the law of sin. But that's not the case anymore. For someone who's following Jesus who has the Spirit of God, there's no condemnation because of that sin. There's no control of that law of sin in somebody's life. You can, you can hear kind of this enslavement language that Paul is using, this being set free from it. Uh, he says this in chapter uh, six, just a couple chapters before eight. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things now which you are ashamed of? Those things result in death. And so Paul literally just said, hey, you are free from the condemnation of sin, from its control. Whereas beforehand, you were a slave to it. You weren't even free to practice righteousness. The, the times that, that you even had an inkling of desire to, to obey God for some reason, you couldn't do it. And most of the time, you didn't want to because you didn't have God's spirit. Apart from God, we, in our own flesh, in our own mortality, we, we can't overcome this power of sin that, Jesus, or that uh, Paul is talking about. Uh, and it, it results in death. It results in brokenness and hurt and destruction in our life. Uh, one way that this played out uh, a lot for me before I started following Christ, before uh, God gave me his spirit, was just my relationship with my family. Uh, oftentimes, I was just like angry at my parents. Uh, I was frustrated with them. Uh, most of the time, it was because I was wanting to do something and they didn't want me to, but it just felt like there was this constant tension with them. I was not giving them the respect that they deserve because they love me so well and that they're my parents. And it caused a lot of tension in my relationship with them. That's just one example of what this being enslaved to sin is. It's like that was my default. That's just how I interacted with them. And that's been every human's problem since the beginning. You have Adam and Eve. They take from the tree the knowledge of good and evil instead of trusting God and, do, and obeying what he said. They succumb to sin. Their son Cain killed his brother Abel out of anger. Noah, the only righteous man in his family left on the earth that God was gonna continue his promise through, that he was going to continue humanity through. After the floods came, he built the ark. They came through the waters. They were saved. What did he do? He planted a vineyard and he got hammered. And he lived in a bunch of immorality. Uh, Moses, who's the great prophet of the Old Testament, was constantly controlled and overcome by anger. David, the man after uh, God's own heart, committed sexual immorality in a very, very bad way. And Israel, God's own people, they were given the law so that they could live with God and they could learn to trust him, but they constantly, over and over again, rebelled against God and they disobeyed the law. No human could overcome it. And so Paul now goes to explain, well, what was God's solution? How did we end up in a state, if we have God's spirit, that there's no condemnation for us, that this power of sin is not overcoming us? Well, he continues in verse three and four. He says this, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is how God solved the problem. He, he, Paul's just unpacking the gospel. You can hear it. He says, hey, 
We couldn't do it, so God came down and did it for us. And he did it in such a way that he experienced every temptation that we did in our weak bodies. Whenever he faced every temptation that we've ever faced, whenever he went face to face with Satan in the wilderness, whenever he got pressed up against by the oppression of Rome, he beat sin every time. He didn't let it overcome him. And so whenever he beat it every time by obeying God and living and demonstrating genuine love to his enemies and pursuing justice, even though he did that, he was condemned, he was executed by both the religious leaders of the Jews and by the Roman officials. And he experienced the law of sin's most powerful weapon, which is death itself. A few chapters before this, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. This physical death Jesus takes on, but he beats that too. And in this evil thing that was done to him, he uses it for good. Because in his resurrection, after he lived this perfectly righteous life and then overcame death, for anybody who realizes, hey, I can't do this on my own, I can't overcome sin on my own, I know the condemnation that I deserve because of my sin, but you're the king, Jesus, and so I'm gonna follow you. Anybody who does that, God gives him his spirit, and then everything that Jesus has, everything that's counted his, is now ours. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ for those who are living life with the Spirit. This is the gospel. And if you're a believer in here today, this is what Paul is crescendoed up for us to get into our hearts, to remember this, because this is our key. This is the guide by which we live life. And if you're in here tonight and you're not a believer, you're not following Jesus, I want to challenge you for the rest of the time we're in here tonight, as we unpack this new freedom that we have in the gospel and this new identity and this new lifestyle, think about what that means. Think about how that might have implications on your own life. And I want you to consider what it would actually mean to follow Jesus and experience this with us. We're set free from the law that held us captive to sin and its consequences. And so we don't have to, to live in, in those consequences of sin uh, with your relationship with your parents, like myself. Before hostile, now have you experienced that freedom and the desire to, I wanna live uh, in a loving and sacrificial way towards them. I wanna be gentle and patient with them. Have you ever experienced any other way where you've gone from not having the spirit to having the spirit, to being enslaved to sin, to now having this freedom? Maybe it's this temptation to look at explicit videos online. It's like, man, even whenever I'm like, I don't wanna do this anymore, I feel like I just have to. But now, whenever you have the spirit, it's no, I know that I can say no to that way that leads to death. And maybe my affections are so much geared towards Jesus that I don't even want to do that anymore. Or maybe it's beforehand whenever gossip was just something that came out of my mouth all the time. Now, because I have the spirit and this new freedom from the law of sin, I don't even, I don't even want to hear that. I don't wanna be around it. Can you think of any examples in your own life where you who are following Jesus have experienced this? This is the new freedom that Paul starts off Romans 8 with, this new reality that we have for those who are living life with the Spirit. And this is the first reality that Paul wants us to know, that we have a new freedom from the law of sin. 
The second reality about life with the Spirit that Paul wants us to understand is that we have a new lifestyle as well. We have access to a new lifestyle. There's a guy that I'm friends with who discipled me for a while, and uh, he drilled this phrase into my brain. It was, the phrase is that what you believe will determine how you behave. What you believe will determine how you behave. And he said this over and over and over again, because whenever we were studying something in the scriptures or we were, or we were getting into some like piece of theology, he wanted to make sure that myself and some of my friends that we did this study together with didn't just learn stuff for the sake of learning it, but to understand that we learn things in order to change the way that we behave and we align those things with following God. Paul wants us to understand the same Thing, But instead of using believe and behave, he's going to say, what you set your mind on will determine how you live. What you set your mind on will determine how you live. I'm sure you guys have seen this uh, play out in, in your own life. If you set your mind on sports, it's a real easy thing to do uh, during this time of year. You got college football, you got professional football, you got major league baseball playoffs, uh, you got NBA season just started. I mean, there's sports galore, fantasy teams all over the place. And if you're a sports fan, you set your mind on those things. You intentionally think about them. And you do it so much that your default thoughts then become sports. And then you start thinking about, oh, what are the four to five days out of the week that I need to make sure I'm home so that way I can watch the sports games that I want to watch? And how many times do I need to check my fantasy league to make sure I'm going to pull out a win this week? And you start rationalizing things like, oh man, we need three TVs in our living room so we can watch as many sports games as possible, like my house did. And you think about sports, 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 sports. It's because you set your mind on sports. If you ever had a crush, you've probably done this as well. You're really into that guy, you're really into that girl, you might set your mind on them. You start thinking about how can I get around them? Maybe they're in this room and you're thinking about, oh man, how do I get around them after this to talk to them? And, and what was that thing that she told me that, that she liked? Oh yeah, I'm gonna bring that up so I can talk about it more. And you set your mind on something. Setting your mind on something is basically painting your worldview to see through a certain lens. If you have glasses and you put those glasses on, the lens through which you see those things, that's your worldview. It's what your mind's preoccupied with. It's what your focus is at. And for Paul, what sets someone apart as a follower of Jesus is what you set your mind on. And there's really only two big categories that you can set your mind on. He's gonna say, you set your mind on the flesh, you set your mind on the spirit. So let's keep going in verse five. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, they cannot please God. And so Paul's saying, hey, those who do not have the spirit of God who are setting their minds on the flesh, they got these glasses on and their worldview are things of the flesh. What are those things? They could be blatant sin or immorality, but oftentimes it's, it's kind of a way of worldliness that's kind of hard to pick up. An example of this would be uh, Jesus and Peter. Right before Jesus is gonna get arrested and eventually taken to his execution, he's telling his disciples, hey, this is what, a, what is about to happen. It's not the first time he's told them about it. And Peter just gets up in arms and he's like, Lord, we would never allow that to happen to you. And you think Jesus is like, oh, my boy's got my back. That's great. But he doesn't. He looks at Peter and says, you, 
get behind me, Satan. You're thinking about worldly things and not heavenly things. You see, Peter's problem was that he was thinking if the kingdom's coming, then we have to overthrow Rome, which means we gotta be more powerful. We gotta go to war. There's no way we're letting them take out our king. But Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not heavenly things. You see, I have to die to be an atonement for sin, to be a sacrifice for sin. And that type of thinking leads to death. We already mentioned a few things. This is natural consequences, brokenness in our own life and in our world. And it's generally just not experiencing this goodness of following Jesus. And it's because we're hostile to God. We are enemies of God, Paul says. And this can happen for both. If you're not following God, then you're in opposition against God in some way. But for the believer, for someone who is walking with God, it it's a, it's a warning to make sure that we don't put on the old self. If you were here this, this morning, Mickey taught about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. This new lifestyle, it's a new self, and we have to choose to live in it because we have the freedom to do so. But there's times where we might slip back into the old self. We don't choose the new self we go back to the old self. And we can even do that while we're trying to please God. We could have our mind set on the flesh while we're doing Christian things. Like you, you could be going to church. You could be getting plugged into a small group. You could be worshiping. You could be doing, reading your Bible. You could be doing all kinds of really good Christian things but your mind is set on the flesh. And, and this has a, been a temptation for a long time. Uh, God says this to his people in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Basically what Israel was doing, they were doing a bunch of the, the church things that God had said, hey, this is good for you to do. This is what you ought to be doing. But the rest of their life was consumed with things of the world. They were worshiping idols. They were not having mercy on people. There was no devotion to God. And he says, I don't care about those things. I want devotion to me because that's where all those things are going to flow from. And, and so believers in the room, that's our warning. That, that is, we gotta make sure we are not operating in the flesh. We're putting our worldview glasses on where we are living this new lifestyle that life with the spirit enables us to live. And so Paul keeps going and he explains, okay, well, what is it to set the mind on the things of the spirit? Those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So we looked at the flesh. What are things of the spirit? Simply, it's God's way of life. If the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God that we serve, then the things that he desires is just the things that God has said is good. It's how Jesus saw things around him and went about living his life. That's why you gotta get in the Gospels. You gotta read what was Jesus saying, doing, thinking, why was he doing it? Because that is our model. And whenever we have our minds set on the things of the Spirit, it leads to life, which is experiencing all the blessings of God is experiencing a tangible relationship with him, and it is peace. It's absence of toil and fear and anxiety, and it's a comfort of being with God. It's the definition of life, to be with God. So what does this look like? What, what does life in the spirit versus life in the flesh look like in an example of life? We'll take uh, relationships, for example. I'm assuming uh, we all have some type of experience or at will some point have some type of experience in a romantic relationship setting. 
to have the mind be set on the spirit or the flesh and to live out in a fleshly way in how we think about relationships might look like this. It might look like whenever I'm thinking about somebody to date, I'm thinking about who would the best one be? Uh, like who, who would the hottest one be? Who would the smartest one be? Who would the most successful, the funniest one be? That's the one that I want because they're gonna be more fun to be around. People are gonna see me with them. It's gonna be like, hey man, nice. Like you guys are together. Yeah, that's awesome. You're gonna be thinking about, okay, wh- how long do we go? And if things start to get out of hand, well, then maybe I just bail because I, I don't know what I'm getting out of it anymore. And you might be thinking, oh, well, how, how much physical pleasure can I get out of the relationship? And how much emotional buy-in can I get out of the relationship to make sure that, that they're not gonna leave and I'm not gonna get hurt? You see how the flesh is centered on self? That's how we might think about a relationship in this old lifestyle. But the new lifestyle, lifestyle governed by the spirit where we're free from sin, we can put away any of that selfishness. We think, okay, when I'm thinking about pursuing a relationship with somebody, I want to be intentional. Intentional in the lens that if we come together eventually to marriage, because that's what dating is for, then I want this relationship to cause both of us to walk closer with God than if we were separate and to advance the kingdom further than if we were separate. And as I go about this relationship, I'm gonna think about, man, how do I serve them well? How do I, if things don't end up going all the way to marriage, I leave them better off than whenever I found them. You see how life in the spirit is is completely others focused. It's completely serving. And if we live like that with each other and then also with the world, that's the example that Jesus is giving and that is the abundant life that he's offering. New lifestyle versus old lifestyle. We are able to choose to live the new lifestyle because of the spirit. So the question is, what are you setting your mind on? What in this season of life, with whatever you got going on, are you setting your mind on? Are you setting your mind on the spirit, access to this reality of a new lifestyle? Are you setting your mind on the flesh, the old lifestyle, the the thing that you're not bound to anymore? Choose the new lifestyle because we are free to do so. This is the second reality about life with the Spirit that Paul wants us to get down in our bones. The third reality about life in the Spirit is that we have a new identity. We have a new identity whenever we have life in the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, this is supposed to get at the core of our identity. This is part of the reason why it was written. And have you ever just stopped as maybe you're reading through the Scriptures and wondered why God uses so many identity statements whenever talking about his people. Like he, he puts out a bunch of analogies about what people who are following Jesus, his people are like to him. Listen to just a few of these. He says we are, Jesus says we are his friend, his brother, his sister. The father says we are his son and daughter. We are a co-heir with Jesus, the king. We are a kingdom of priests for him. We are ambassadors on this world for him. We are his dearly beloved treasure. Why would God refer to us in so many meaningful statements like this about our identity? It's because your identity dictates your life. Your identity dictates your life. Just like 
What you believe determines how you behave, and what you set your mind on determines how you live. All those are wrapped up in who are you? It's because your identity dictates your life. And so Paul gives us these three truths to help us shape our identity and and influence the way that we live and think about uh, our lives. The first one is that you belong to Christ. If you are, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are a follower of Jesus. Hear me say this: You belong to Christ. Paul says this in verse nine: If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Him. So the marker of whether or not you are in the family of God is if you have the Spirit. And so if you do, you belong to Christ. What are the implications of that? Why? Why does that matter? Well, if you belong to Christ you are considered to be in God's family. Like I said, you're a co-heir with Jesus. You are his brother, his sister, his family. The father is our father. And we have access to all of the things of the family. That's what it means whenever you belong to Christ. It means that everything that Jesus has, you have, because we have been united with him. That is part of our belonging to Christ. We also have security, Jesus says this in John 10. He says that anyone whom the Father gives him, he will not lose. We have security that God is not going to leave us if we belong to Christ, if we have the Spirit. This is part of the new identity that we have with the Spirit. So how will you let this identity dictate this part of your life, that you belong to Christ? It's the first truth about this new identity. The second truth is that you are spirit-filled. You are spirit-filled. If you have the spirit of God, if you are in Christ, that means God's spirit is literally working alongside your own spirit inside of you, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it. But this is what's true. Paul says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And so the Spirit gives life because he gives us the power to overcome sin, which leads to death. And whenever we avoid that, we walk in this newness of life. We experience life with God. Not just whenever we die and like go to heaven, as we say, but right now, we experience real life. I was at a uh, baptism this morning for a, a friend of mine that I've known for a little over a year now, almost two years. And the life transformation from him before he received the Spirit to after he became Spirit-filled is one of the coolest that I have ever seen. He's a completely new person, and you can see the life coming out of him, radiating out of him as he talks with you, as he interacts with you, as he just goes about doing his daily life. It is absolutely incredible. That's the type of life that a Spirit-filled life looks like. So how will you let this part of your identity dictate your life. The third truth about this new identity that we have is that your life is forever. This is part of your identity. Your life is forever. Paul says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So right now, in this section, Paul, he is referencing what's called the final resurrection. Basically, God is working through history right now as I speak 
to redeem his people and to make all things new. In Ephesians, in the Sunday or in the morning service, we've been talking about uniting all things in Christ. Eventually, that will come to completion. And whenever that comes to completion and all of the sin and death and brokenness in the world is done away with, there will be a, this new heavens and new earth, this recreation of everything that we know all the way down to the physical makeup of the earth. There will be no more brokenness and we will get to live and reign with God forever on this earth. And that is true of you. Your identity is that your life will live forever. And that is a great hope. If everything hits the fan, your hope is that your life is forever and that you will reign with Christ on the new heavens and the new earth. How does that change the way that you live? Like if you know that, What's going to stop you? I can think about the, the early Christians whenever Rome is just killing them left and right and Rome is getting so frustrated because they don't care. They're like, yes, burn me at the stake. It will be a pleasing sacrifice of God and I'll get to be, be home with God and, and I'll be resurrected. And all the Romans are like, well, I don't know what to do with this. Like we kill them and that doesn't make a difference. And if we let them live, then they're doing all these things that we hate, but we kind of need them around because they're helping with so much. It's the, it's the only way that frustrates the world to live because you're unstoppable whenever you live like this and that is part of your new identity. A new identity is the third reality of life with the Spirit. And so in this first section of Romans 8, whenever Paul talks about what does our life with the Spirit look like, he wants us to understand that we have new freedom from the law of sin. We have a new lifestyle that is so much greater than the old lifestyle that we have the freedom to choose to live in. And we have a new identity made up these three truths that we just looked at. And if we get this in our bones and in our heart and we live life knowing these things, whew, I don't know what would happen. It'd be absolutely incredible because we are living one of the greatest stories ever written. Yeah, we have Harry Potter. Yeah, we have Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we have Star Wars. Yeah, we have all these incredible stories throughout history that are being written with this theme of the fact that there are people who get influenced by something. Their lives change because they're given something. They understand something. They're empowered by something. And then a whole new reality opens up to them. And they choose whether or not to live in it. And once they step into it, there's, there's no going back because it is completely a part of your identity. So many great stories written like that, so many great books and movies. Or if you think about that biblical theme that we just saw Paul break down in all these stories, you probably catch on to some other biblical themes and all these other stories that we love so much. And the reason that that is is because we write stories that we can relate to. They speak about part of our own lives. And everybody on planet Earth, whether you're in Christ or not, you are experiencing God working out truths in the world. And that's why they get played out in all these great stories. And the greatest story is whenever you join God's story of redemption, that he will fulfill all things that he has promised but we gotta remember as we leave here tonight that it is all wrapped up in life with the Spirit. Your identity dictates your life and we have access to an incredible 
new life in the spirit. It makes me wonder, what would it look like for every single person in this room to get this whenever we walk out of here? What would it look like for for every college-age student, every college-age person in Northwest Arkansas who is a believer to really understand this and to really live this out? Like, what would God do with a bunch of people living this spirit-filled life in every avenue of their own life? If you pay attention, it's happening. It's happening all around you. There's tons of examples at the U of A, at JBU, NWAC, in the workplace of of college-age people and young adults who are completely surrendering to the spirit that has filled them up because they've started following Jesus, and God is doing incredible things through it. And so my challenge for us is that we would believe that, and we would walk out of here tonight and then for the rest of our lives and choose to live this new life in the spirit that Paul wants us to understand so greatly. And I promise it will be a great adventure, greater than any adventure than any of the books or the movies that we've talked about tonight because we get to do it with God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy uh, towards us that we can even gather here uh, like this, that we have access to you through the spirit and God, you've made us co-heirs with Jesus, which is absolutely wild. Um, I just ask that you would teach us to listen to your spirit, to set our minds on the things of the spirit and not the flesh, and that we would experience that true life with you, that we'd see you work, that our faith would be built up, and that we would just give our lives completely over to you. And every decision that we make, uh, every, every plan that we make would be guided by your spirit and that we would just see your blessing go out uh, to the world because of it. So we praise you for that tonight. Amen.